Welcome to today's American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. My name is Scott Pryor, and I'm a professor of law at Regent University School of Law. This semester, I'm also the American Bankruptcy Institute resident scholar. We typically think of bankruptcy cases as falling into one of two broad categories. Consumer bankruptcy, in which the primary goal is for the consumer debtor to get a discharge from overwhelming debt, and business bankruptcies, in which the goal is either to reorganize a business so it can continue profitably into the future, or to sell the assets of the business in an orderly fashion to obtain as much value as possible for creditors. Today we're going to be talking with Pamela Fui, visiting assistant professor of law at the University of Illinois, about her new paper, Bankrupting the Faith. First, Pamela, why don't you introduce yourself and give us a brief overview of what your article is about. Thanks, Scott, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss my study and my article. So the article is based on my original research and presents the results of an empirical study of every religious organization that filed under Chapter 11 from 2006 through 2011. focuses on the bankruptcies of these faith-based institutions to draw out the institution's characteristics and reasons for filing and case outcomes to investigate what benefits Chapter 11 brings to them and whether bankruptcy is an effective solution to their financial problems. And at the same time, it looks at the efficiency of bankruptcy courts overall in processing their cases, and the proportion of cases that ended in plan confirmation or otherwise ended successfully for debtors and their creditors. Well, that's all very interesting, Pamela, but first, how did you uh, find a religious organizations? After all, debtors don't uh, have a checkoff box to indicate that when they file bankruptcy. Yes, um, that is exactly right. So my methodology was to uh, go through every Chapter 11 filing from the beginning of 2006 through the end of 2011 to pull out what I term as religious organizations. Um, I defined a religious organization rather broadly to mean any institution whose operations are motivated in a meaningful way by religious principles or beliefs. And I also defined religious broadly to mean any sort of faith, including non-affiliated spirituality. And the first step of my study was to find these filings. Um, And so what I did was go through the debtor's name, the petition name, of every petition that was filed and tried to put together a list of what I thought would be faith-based organizations, um, and there was no way to find them based on their petition because there's no checkbox for I am a religious institution. There is a checkbox for I am a nonprofit organization, but as soon as I started looking through the cases, I realized that maybe about 50% of nonprofits actually check the box. So once I had a list of these petitions, I went through the case filings to see if either the debtors or creditors identified the institution as a nonprofit or otherwise 
had a religious identifier. The practical effect of my definition is that I captured a wide variety of organizations that could be argued to be religious. So it included hospitals, such as the St. Vincent Catholic Medical Centers, universities, um, schools, a mortgage company that was nonprofit and gave loans only to uh, churches, some senior living communities. Um, but overall, predominantly, I captured Christian churches and some primary education schools, Jewish synagogues and schools, and a few Buddhist, Hindu, and Islamic affiliated organizations. Well, Pamela, after uh, calling through uh, all of the filings for that five-year period, how many ended up being uh, religious organizations? So there were 60,000 filings during those five years. And using my broad definition, I identified 516 cases and 473 unique debtors, meaning that a number of churches mainly filed twice and some filed three times during my five-year period. That number included seven Catholic dioceses and 10 have filed overall. two hospitals, some senior living communities, and three YMCAs. So I removed those when uh, to create my final data set and in writing my paper because these organizations generally provide services that are also provided in the private market, and I really wanted to hone in on the Christian churches and the Jewish synagogues. In relation to all Chapter 11 cases, This is obviously an exceedingly small number and small percentage of the cases that were filed. It also is very small in relation to the number of faith-based organizations operating in the United States every year, and also in relation to those that close every year. So I used estimates of congregations in the United States as a proxy of religious organizations which necessarily is a low number of religious organizations in the United States, so will yield high percentages of the numbers that are filing every year. But still, only 0.03% of religious organizations that are operating in a given year file each year, and only 2% of those that close in a given year file under Chapter 11 in a given year. And this percentage is lower than estimates of small businesses that close and file in any given year. And I've seen estimates of those around 5%. Um, So religious organizations seem to be filing under Chapter 11 less often than you would otherwise think if you thought of them as businesses, but possibly more often than you would think if you thought of them as nonprofit organizations and um, just the church down the street. Interestingly, there was an upward trend over the years of the study. Each year, more religious organizations filed, and this upward trend is not reflected in the total number of Chapter 11 filings during each year of the study. And as many may know, Chapter 11 filings 
peaked in 2009 and have been decreasing since then, whereas the debtors in my study for the religious organizations are filing more and more every year. Well, that raises the question, at least in my mind, of what are the causes of the bankruptcy filings for uh, religious organizations? So based on what I could glean from the filings in their cases, the vast majority of debtors say that they're filing in order to save their real property from foreclosure. And this property predominantly is a church or school building. But of course, filing to save property merely is a symptom of underlying problems. And those underlying problems are perhaps the most interesting part of my study. Based on what debtors wrote in their disclosure statements, I identified two main sets of circumstances that led to the financial problems that made Chapter 11 attractive to them. First, as one might predict, uh, the Great Recession impacted churches. As family budgets tightened because of job loss or reduction in hours worked, church members cut back on their contribution to their churches. And this loss in revenue contributions caused some of them to be unable to meet monthly mortgage payments. Oftentimes, those mortgage payments seem to have recently increased because churches undertook renovations and expansions during better economic times. So they presumably were already tight on cash and a, a small drop in contributions had the potential to spell financial disaster. And at the same time, the real estate values were declining and lending markets were tightening. So when debtors approached their lenders for refinancing or asked for different repayment terms, lenders often said no and also continued to refuse to negotiate successfully, which seemed to force the churches to file under Chapter 11. The second set of circumstances is not linked to specific economic times. It has more to do with the debtor's leadership, which often is a pastor or reverend. Even if there was a board of directors or a board of elders overseeing the organization, the crucial involvement of a single leader or couple, such as a pastor and his wife, stood out in the debtor's discussion of their road to bankruptcy. If the pastor, the founding pastor, or a beloved pastor had left or died or had done something to cause the members to lose faith in him, the church suffered. Members left or stopped contributing. Often the pastor merely made unsound business decisions or simply did not attend carefully enough to the business side of the church. So in these circumstances, from what I could glean from their filings, if the church was to survive, the remaining members seemed to need to find a leader to revitalize the congregation, or the pastor who had m made mistakes in the past needed to show the church's members that he was righting those wrongs and putting the congregation back on track. One very noticeable constant across all the organizations was their apparent inability to seek financial help from what I would term an overarching government body. So in contrast to Catholic dioceses, 
most of the churches in my study are congregationalist and essentially are on their own, and most import- importantly, on their own financially. So I began my article with a couple stories. I bring up Crystal Cathedral Ministries, which may be the only church bankruptcy other than the Catholic bankruptcies that most bankruptcy experts and practitioners have heard of. Crystal's story is typical in that its finances were impacted by the economic downturn and stated generously it suffered from some leadership failure, which at this point has led to the founders leaving to start a new church. Uh, But Crystal's size, as measured by its assets and debts and employees, makes it much different from the vast majority of organizations I found. The debtors generally are very small. They arrive in bankruptcy court with about $3 million in assets, almost all of which is tied up in their physical buildings, and also about 2 to $3 million in debts, most of it relating to uh, secured lending on their buildings. So I rely on the story of Ark of Safety, which is a church just west of Chicago, to demonstrate the problems that most debtors face. Ark of Safety filed in 2010, and it was formed 12 years earlier in 1998. Uh, it did very well for about 10 years under the leadership of its founding bishop, who held the first services in a small storefront, and then over these 10 years, as membership grew, the church expanded and purchased its own building, and purchased a building big enough for it to have space to rent to tenants. Um, but in 2008, the founding bishop divorced, which caused, and I quote from the disclosure statement, confusion and devastation among its members, which caused members to leave and stop contributing. And at the same time, the economic downturn hit, and the remaining members contributed less. Arc of Safety also lost money from the termination of a lease for some of that building space. Yet it owned a church that was worth $1.2 million, and on which it owed a million dollars, and otherwise owed approximately $150,000 in unsecured debt. Um, And in addition to the equity, it seemed like its remaining members really wanted to keep the building. So it filed. It seemed to get its affairs in order, including Bishop the bishop renewing the faith of his congregants, and it continues to operate today in the same building. Well, Pamela, that you know, what you're describing there, the real estate focus of uh, a lot of these uh, bankruptcy filings of religious organizations makes me think of the broader category of single-asset real estate cases. How are the bankruptcies of uh, religious organizations with regard primarily real estate alike and different from the typical single-asset real estate cases? The debtors' emphasis on saving their real estate initially makes you think of single-asset real estate cases. In addition, these debtors tended to have one or two secured creditors, which hold almost all the value of the claims in their cases again, making them resemble single-asset real estate cases. And in addition, they had very few unsecured creditors who held a very small proportion 
of the claims and the cases. They obviously are not single-asset real estate because they conduct substantial business in their real estate. Nonetheless, as with these cases, I could envision an argument against their access and use of Chapter 11 um, based on assertions that the filing would be counterproductive since their cases essentially are two-party disputes that could be handled by the state foreclosure process. Indeed, creditors, secure creditors, often made this argument in initial motions to dismiss cases. Um, but bankruptcy courts seem to be only uh, seem to only dismiss those cases in which the debtor's equity was in their real estate was rather low or they were underwater. Um, and in other cases where the debtor had equity in the property, bankruptcy courts overall seem to allow them to continue their reorganization cases and propose plans, uh, which I think overall was beneficial because the results of the studies suggest that the cases themselves are useful to debtors and creditors and possibly the surrounding communities. They, they seem to solve negotiation problems that otherwise were not being taken care of outside of the bankruptcy process and preserved value equity cushions that it seems reasonable to predict would be lost in the foreclosure process, particularly considering that these churches' real property is rather valuable church buildings, which potentially have a rather illiquid market. Um, and possibly most important to congregants, members of churches were able to stay in their buildings, which preserves communities overall. Well, Pamela, that, that suggests there are some uh, real benefits to uh, Chapter 11 to these religious organization uh, uh, bankruptcies. Is there anything unique about the uh, bankruptcy court procedure as it applies to these sorts of uh, cases? So part of my article focuses on the procedural aspects of their Chapter 11 cases. Um, and I specifically focused on the duration of their cases and the filing and disposition of motions to draw out whether one party seemed to be more influential on bankruptcy courts. And these focuses track previous research, which is why I picked them. And overall, I found that the procedure of their cases to be very similar to what was found in previous studies of business reorganization, um, most specifically small business reorganization. As to duration, the median case in my study was disposed of within about seven and a half months, which is very similar to previous studies findings. Um, and compared to benchmarks of how long it might take to sell a business or sell real estate, evidences a relatively fast process. Uh, bankruptcy courts tended to dispose of cases with plans faster than those without plans, and if a debtor did not file schedules or fail to pay fees or did not retain counsel, its case was dismissed basically in a median of a month. The fact that religious organizations are not filing their schedules within the prescribed amount of time 
or not paying fees or particularly not retaining counsel may evidence something very unique about their filings. Um, I talk about how their cases are about preserving the real property, and I liken them to Chapter 13 cases in which a consumer debtor files in order to be able to stay in his or her home where they have memories and are emotionally attached to the property. And in those cases in which debtors did not retain counsel, I could see congregants coming together and potentially filing in hopes that they could save their church buildings. Uh, on the other hand, anecdotally, I've um, heard that there are a lot of small business debtors who simply file and then do not follow up and file schedules or fail to pay their fees and their cases are dismissed on those bases. Um, those cases with plans pended longer than those without plans, and it took courts a longer time to dismiss cases with proposed plans that were not confirmed than to confirm proposed plans, which I identify as an area for future research. That is how bankruptcy courts assess plans and debtors' prospects once plans are filed. And finally, as to mediating among the interests of debtors and creditors and other parties, such as the United States trustee, a review of the trajectory of their cases, focusing on motions to lift the stay and dismiss, evidences that no one party, on average, seemed to assert more influence than any other party. That is, bankruptcy courts seem to mediate among requests allowing debtors a chance to prove that they had a viable reorganization prospect, but also dismissing debtors in cases where the debtor did not have a significant equity cushion in property or otherwise was not meeting its obligations. And overall, these results support previous studies, and it seems that the cases of religious organizations procedurally are handled very similarly by bankruptcy courts as they handle cases of both small and larger business debtors. So in terms of ultimate outcomes, uh, it sounds as if quite a few of these religious organization bankruptcies end up with a uh, confirmed Chapter 11 plan. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. I, I tried to pull out a measure of success beyond plan confirmation in the study. But determining what should be termed a successful Chapter 11 case is uh, a difficult and enduring question. So I started my analysis by focusing on plan confirmation because previous studies, in particular papers coming out of the Business Bankruptcy Project over the past several years, have reported success as a percent of cases that ended in plan confirmation. And they do this because there is a old, very often quoted statistic quoted to support the failure of Chapter 11 um, from the late 80s in a study coming out of the administrative office of the courts that says 17% of cases end in plan confirmation. Of the cases in this study, 27% ended with a confirmed plan. 
And these plans predominantly were reorganization plans, not liquidation plans. And this percentage is in line with uh, prior studies, but studies coming after the uh, administrative office study from the late 80s. It also is uh, inconsistent with other studies that focus on whether debtors both confirm and complete their reorganization plans. I found one study that looked at one bankruptcy court out of New York that reports that 6.5% of debtors both confirm and complete a reorganization plan. In my study, 19% of debtors confirmed and completed their reorganization plans. So overall, based on plan confirmation, my study seems to confirm more recent studies of the usefulness of Chapter 11. Um, of course, plan confirmation might not be the most, the most complete measure of success. So I move on to supplement this measure by adding those cases that were dismissed without plan confirmation where the debtor or another party represented to the court that the debtor and its creditors came to a resolution of the issues in the case that either allowed the debtor to keep operating post-dismissal or pay all its creditors in full. Proceeding on the premise that one of the purposes of Chapter 11 is to preserve going concern value, if a debtor's Chapter 11 case ended with the debtor being able to satisfy creditors or emerge as an intact entity, that seems successful as well. So adding in these cases, the percentage of successful cases in my study increases to a total of 35%. Given previous research, the results are not that surprising. Uh, larger cases tend to have a greater chance of ending with confirmation of a plan and the big public companies that file under Chapter 11 usually confirm some sort of plan. Uh, a few of my debtors in the study were larger. In addition, the debtors predominantly had more assets than debts, and they had uh, assets tied up in real estate, which was probably difficult to sell, which made me think that the debtors and their creditors would be more likely to be able to come to a resolution of their problems through the Chapter 11 process. Um, and to a large extent, the organizations seem to be sorting themselves into Chapter 11. So I, I stepped back and I looked at all of the assets and debts that the debtors reported in their schedules. And as I mentioned before, overall they have about $3 million in assets and between two and three million dollars in debts. And all of it, all the assets and most of the debts are tied up in their real property. Um, and overall, they're both balance sheet solvent and also tend to hold an equity cushion in their real estate. So for, to a large extent, I thought that the organizations would be able to come to a resolution with their creditors through the Chapter 11 process. In addition, I talk about how the debtors in my study are relatively old. They've been operating for about 20 years before they file uh, under Chapter 11. 
And to me, this evidence is that they have memberships and congregants who are interested in preserving the church and preserving the church in the physical building in which they've met over the last 20 years. On the other hand, these cases are of nonprofit debtors that primarily operate places of worship. So it seems that they could simply close their doors and move down the street to a different location. The question is, what is really being preserved through these cases? And I posit that the congregations have a particular attachment to that piece of property. And they want to continue meeting in the property that they worked hard to be able to afford and construct and renovate. So the cases are more than simply about preserving an equity cushion. It's about preserving a community. Indeed, overall, I think I, in the end, was surprised that more reorganization plans were not filed and were not confirmed. And part of the reason for the low filing and confirmation rate I think it's evident in the higher percentage of settlement agreements between debtors and secured creditors than I anticipated. And another reason is that secured creditors generally were successful in lifting the state on real property in which the debtor was significantly underwater. And they did so relatively early in cases before a debtor could propose a plan. And finally, the rate also may be slightly lower than I had expected because a portion of the debtors failed to retain counsel or file their schedules, which is in line with what happens with small businesses in Chapter 11. Well, Pamela, that you know, your, your research focuses on a data set for the five years ending in 2011. Uh, anecdotally, at least, do you have any uh, observations on what's been happening since then? So I haven't updated my database on an ongoing basis, but I've tried to take note of new filings. And generally, I see about 10 filings every month. And in fact, I saw two churches filed in the Northern District of Georgia yesterday. So overall, this indicates to me that churches are continuing to file under Chapter 11, and possibly at the same rates they have in previous years which would supplement my findings that religious organizations overall are increasing their filings every year while Chapter 11 filings are going down. Um, Their cases still are very unnoticed, and as far as I know, haven't produced any published decisions. Well, this is a very interesting, but I'm interested in uh, knowing how you came to be interested in this uh, particular small slice of Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Could you fill us in on that? Absolutely. So uh, before I came to be a visiting assistant professor, I spent two years in private practice. And during that time, during most of those two years, I was involved in the Chapter 11 case of the Las Vegas Monorail Corporation, which is a nonprofit and whose case I think finally is wrapping up. Drawing on issues that I saw in that case as um, an attorney, I've previously written doctrinal articles about issues with nonprofit reorganization, specifically focusing on the absolute priority rule and how it applies to organizations that have no equity or equity holders. 
and so I set out to conduct an empirical study of nonprofit Chapter 11 cases overall. And when collecting data, I soon noticed that more than half of the entities were religious organizations and mainly smaller churches. So I decided to focus initially on these cases. And in that vein, uh, I think this area, nonprofits and religious organizations, is an area ripe for additional research. And I foresee my research proceeding in three different directions. First, there really is so much one can get out of bankruptcy filings, such as disclosure statements. So my next step is to reach out to debtors and their attorneys to hear their perspectives on their filings, why they considered bankruptcy and why they ultimately filed, what they think they received from the Chapter 11 process, and also how they are faring post-bankruptcy. Of particular interest, as I point out in my article, is the fact that 50% of the cases in the study originate in 10 judicial districts. And these districts are not the same districts as where a higher percentage of Chapter 11 cases are filed, and similarly where Chapter 13 cases typically are filed. So I'd like to focus on those jurisdictions with my research to draw out potentially evidence of local culture, legal or otherwise, that are drawing churches to Chapter 11 in these jurisdictions in particular. In some of these districts, it seems that debtors use particular attorneys and that certain offices are kind of building niche practices with church and possibly nonprofit reorganization. And some of these jurisdictions have a sizable percentage of the pro se debtors in my study. And I also would like to add data, if I can re reliably locate it, about how the denominations of churches in these jurisdictions, um, basically if there are more congregationalist churches in these jurisdictions, and then it might make sense to see a larger percentage of debtors filing in these judicial districts. So that's the first area of additional research. And I would also like to focus on bankruptcy court procedure on a high level. I'd like to take a more detailed look at the data and focus on how quickly cases are disposed, what factors are related to their disposition time, uh, and how courts might be handling cases with proposed plans, as I mentioned. I'd also like to add data about professional fees, which would add new evidence to compare with pre-BAFSIPA studies of professional fees in small Chapter 11 cases. And my initial research shows that most debtors simply give their attorneys a retainer of about $10,000 to handle their Chapter 11 case. Um, and I'd also like to focus on the small business debtors in my study whose cases BAPSIPA's provisions impact. Though these religious organizations technically are not small business debtors because they don't carry on any commercial or business activities, some of the cases proceed as small business cases and are dismissed based on the small business case timetable. And third and finally, as I noted, the project began as a study of all Chapter 11 filings, 
of nonprofit organizations. So I still have about 400 other cases to dig through, and I'd like to focus on those organizations and maybe compare and contrast their cases to the religious organization cases. Um, and combined, the evidence potentially may suggest a need to rethink certain code provisions as they apply to nonprofits. For example, Section 303 provides that involuntary petitions can't be commenced against non-moneyed corporations, which includes nonprofits and the religious organizations in my study. Given that there may be benefits to reorganization and that the debtors in my study evidence a breakdown in negotiation among debtors and creditors, there may be re reasons to reconsider this provision and similar provisions in the code. Well, thank you, Pamela. This has been a very informative uh, information about this particular field of the uh, Chapter 11 practice, and we look forward to your uh, continued research in this area and uh, the results of that research. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Until our next podcast, this is Scott Pryor on behalf of the American Bankruptcy Institute.